Control, this is Agent Aldrin. I need to request to open up cell 311. Free Me Podcast. Good afternoon. This is Thomas with Free Me Podcast. Today we're with Dr. Robert Roten. He is the founder of the Arizona Trauma Institute. How are you doing today, doctor? I'm doing well. Thank you. So you're out in Arizona. How did you come about founding this this Arizona Trauma Institute? Um, Part of that is really just uh, my own curiosity about trauma and the beginnings of, of learning how to work with it and then realizing that um, a lot of the people that are professionals don't know how to work with it. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of times people get trained in a model of treatment and will try to apply that to everybody that they work with without understanding that each person's unique trauma history means that you have to approach them uniquely. And so I, I became kind of dissatisfied with what was out there and begin to teach people how to do this. I was teaching college at the time and um, I began with some of the, my graduate students and, and uh, when I retired from the university, um, I'd been kind of doing this on the side for, I don't know, six, seven years. And um, the demand was so much that we essentially, when I retired, it was a one person, it was me and a part-time receptionist person. And now we have close to 18 people and we operate uh, courses and we have learners in 138 countries and we have, we train approximately 25,000 people a year. So um, you would think with all of that, that you'd make a bigger dent in the mental health world, but um, that's just, the, the system is very slow to change. So that's what we work on is trying to educate people on how to work with trauma more effectively and how to stop looking at what is natural responses as being pathology or bad behavior or and the list goes on and on. So that's, for me, it was just dissatisfaction with what was available. Why do you think that is? I mean, why do you think that mental health is not a, a priority in this country? It is a priority. But how to do it well isn't a priority. Ah. The economic in, uh, structure, and if you want to think of it as a, a medical and pharmaceutical industrial complex, um, stand to lose billions of dollars if the system changes. And so there is no um, impetus on their part to have it actually be working for the good of the client. All of these programs are designed for the good of the mental health field. And so, you know, you look at, you go to a psychiatrist and their job is to give you medication. And rather than teach you how to manage what's going on, they give you medication. When you go to a therapist to, to begin to get treatment, you have to prove you're sick enough to be worthy to be treated. Uh, they do that in their intake process. And then they focus on how you're damaged and broken. And, you know, the simple law of the way the, the brain and nervous system works, what you focus on, you get more of. And so we, we have these people that go into, they're, invulner- they're vulnerable, they want help. And they are continually focused on what isn't working 
and they, they do more of it. And then people are surprised. And then we begin to label the client, um, they're resistant or they're non-compliant or they're in denial or the, the list of negative labels is huge. And really basically what they're saying is that it's their fault that they're having these symptoms. And that's, that, that system, the way it's designed, supports the economic infrastructure of, of medicine, psychiatry, and mental health. And it doesn't really focus on wellness for the individual. What I've well said, and, and I guess that's, that's how I've always been because I've had a lifetime of trauma and it's led me down a, a, a dark, dark road. And it took me many years into my adulthood to, to really start to figure out what was going on inside my own brain. And mm -hmm. I've never been one to, even as a child, I've just never been one to take medication, you know, because I've always looked at medication as just a Band-Aid. You know, I, I always wanted to know how to fix the problem so I didn't have to take medication, mm -hmm. you know. And I guess in my early 20s, I was diagnosed with, with ADHD. And again, I, I tried taking, uh, you know, I was on Ritalin as a child. Um, then they put me on Prozac for a little while, you know, and, and the, the effects that I, it, it just altered me, you know, I just didn't feel human in a sense, you know, and, and I just didn't want that. And that started me on my cycle to try to just figure out what my triggers were, how to, to, to calm my anxiety, you know, just, just these, these, these skills, you know, is, so is this what you try to, to implement in, in your courses? Well, I try to teach people the basic science of what's going on, um, you know, why the body's operating the way it is, and to help them understand that this isn't bad behavior. It isn't, it isn't mental illness. It is the way the body's designed to work. And if you want to help somebody, you have to work with the way the body works. You can't demand that they do something that they really aren't equipped to do. And a lot of the mental health approaches really um, don't do a good job of that. Well, I think us as human beings, like when, I know when I try to teach somebody something, I'm trying to teach them how I learned, but that specific person does not learn that way. So how do we teach how do we learn a person and how they learn? Like what signs, how does that even work? Well, I think before you can even do that, you have to understand what's going on. Um, you know, for when we start working with folks, uh, not only clients, but when we start to train people, we, we really start with some very basic things. Our nervous system is running the show. Our nervous system is the foundation of all thought, all sensation, all emotion, all movement, all action requires the use of that, that nervous system. And our, our nervous system strives to make everything work in unity. And trauma basically interferes with that ability to create that unity. And we, are, we all often are looking at the nervous system responses and we, we give them labels but most of the responses are exactly what should be happening with the what's, what's going on in the brain and the nervous system. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes kind of a, a challenge for us because 
when if you're really looking at trauma, the way we define trauma in so much of the literature is we talk about this big bad event. But most people that have a big bad event are never going to go to therapy for it because they work through it quite well all on their own. The the thing that's that is incredibly unfortunate is that we tend because we're our focus and this is what mental health has done is this focused on this this in this single event distracts everybody from understanding that it is it is daily toxic stress repeated adversity and environment that is driving arousal in this body and the experiences that people are having are related to what's going on in here but if they don't understand that, then what they do, and, and you know, I see this in graduate programs all over the country, is we train people to analyze a situation based on the symptoms rather than understanding that the symptoms are actually correct. And what you really need to be doing is focusing on how can I help change this environment? <coughs> so, excuse me. So that becomes kind of a challenge. Um, and, you know, we don't want to, on this program, we don't want to go into all of the, the neurochemicals involved, but some of them, you know, most people are kind of familiar with some of them, but the reality is, is all of the, all of the biochemical and hormonal activity is creating neuroconnections in the brain and nervous system. In other words, because our nervous system is reacting to our environment, we're actually building connections <clears throat> that are now physical structures in the brain and nervous system. And once those structures are formed, we operate the, on them automatically. We're not, we're not evaluating them. We're operating them on, on, them, on those memory. just, well, it's like muscle memory. We call it procedural memory. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, but it's, you know, all sorts of things, which sock do you put on first, which shoe do you tie first? Uh, you know, you know, when you have something on your plate, which do you, you know, what do you do first? Pick up your spoon, pick up your fork. We have all of these patterns that we build from repetitive experience, but though the this isn't necessarily just the repetitive experience that's happening, but it is what's happening in that nervous system. So you have a kid that, that uh, is living in an environment where the stress level is high, not abused, not hit, not... Um, not deprived of food, but they're ignored or they're treated like they're unimportant and they can't connect with their parents. And the stress of that early on begins to build patterns of how to operate, how to hold your body, how to think, how to emote, how to connect with people. And so you, you have in the same family, you can have multiple presentations of this because each kid's going to adapt to the environment in a unique way. Maybe the oldest child is the anxious, perfectionistic, overachiever trying to earn connection, you know, and value with the parents. Another child might be um, so so distressed by this that they'll do anything to not feel any any kind of arousal, um, and so they become kind of um, overly involved in reading or video games, or as they approach teenage years, that they, they can't tolerate that kind of distress in their body at all and so they look for things to to distract the body or to to mitigate that 
possibility of arousal. So they will do things like, you know, compulsive behaviors, or they will use drugs. And what we tend to do is punish the use of drugs and punish the use of compulsive behaviors, rather than how do we stabilize this environment so the child's body isn't in this constant state of arousal? Because until we can get them regulated, we can't possibly help them learn differently. That probably was an overlong answer. No, I mean, Dr. Bob, that, 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 that's the premise of my whole show, right? Is, is, is trying to bring awareness to young parents how, how detrimental they are to, to, their, to their children without even realizing it. And it's like you said, it's not these traumatic events of, of you know, the husband beating the wife or, or anything like that. It's just tension in the house that the child that's not explained to the child. You know, it's, it's like I say, you know, back in the days, you know, the elder used to take the, the child out for his first hunt. And the hunt itself was a traumatic experience, right? The kill was a traumatic experience for the child. But when the when the elder sat down and he explained to the child, this is why we hunt, this animal feeds the tribe, you know, we bless the animal, all of these things, it subdues that, you know, that, that trauma. Because now that the child is able to process why this happened and he understands it and he agrees with it eternally. But with today, because of, of uh, economical pressures and, and social norms and, and all of these distractions that are around us all day constantly, you know, as adults, we don't have time to, to put these explanations into our children. So when, a, when an event like a global pandemic, go ahead. Well, I, I, uh, it's not that we don't have time. It is that we have adults that aren't regulated themselves well enough, they aren't meeting their Thank own you. needs well no, enough to meet anybody correct. else. Yeah, so it, we it do have a, the time, we're just proportionally, you know, yeah. appropriately, differently, yeah. You get, you get parents that are um, getting into relationships, getting out of relationships, you have, um, you know, no real, no real intentionality, it's all reactivity. And so they, they're ill-equipped to, and they're not mature enough quite often. And so what we end up doing is seeing this intergenerational transmission of, of toxic stress environments. And because the parent is never fully matured in their own life, they, they don't regulate themselves, they don't they're not operating in their executive functioning system. Everything and our society promotes that. You know, their first question is, well, how do you feel about that? Well, when did emotions become the dominant thing? Um, you know, you're going to feel bad about a lot of things that you need to do in life. And that doesn't mean you don't do them. You know, you're going to have a lot of challenges. I don't feel like doing it is not an answer. And, and what we have built is in the last 50 years is a society that's really over-focused on emotion instead of understanding that when you are in your executive functioning system, you make a choice and act on that and follow through on that because you're doing it intentionally. Um, 
And until you can get into that part of the brain and stay in it for the most, most of the time, you can't, you can't grow intentionally very well. You're not going to sustain changes you make very well. And, and our system doesn't really support uh, mature, responsible parenting um, because we, you know, for any number of reasons. And then because parents aren't able to regulate themselves, they're all about them and what they're experiencing rather than what the child is experiencing. And so they tend to focus everything. It's, you know, look at how many, and I don't mean this to be critical, but it's just, it's just a a clear evidence. Um, A man or a woman, depending on whichever parent you're with, starts dating and they want to sleep with this person. And so you're supposed to like them and you're supposed to get along with them. Why? Because your parent wants to sleep with them. You're supposed to accept them into your life. Well, that doesn't work out. So they're on to somebody else and they're on to somebody else and they're on to somebody else. What do you, what does the child learn from that is that relationships are not permanent, that they're to meet sexual gratification and they have no other purpose. And that uh, the child has no rights to like or not like whoever comes into their life. Well, that is, those are horrible messages to leave a child. And now, what about, what about when that woman is allowing these men to come into their home and, and beat on her in front of the child, men after men after men? You know, that's also, the, you know, there's messages. Not only is there constant tension, but this is how you behave with somebody. And, you know, these are patterns that are built early, early in life. And then, they, then once the pattern is built, we are not looking for you know, well, why am I thinking this way? It just becomes automatic. Um, and and there's, a, there's a lack of understanding of what's really going on. A simple little one. There's, when the body moves into that aroused state, there's about 100 changes that occur in our perception. One of the first and most prominent is the musculature of the middle ear constricts. And when the musculature of the middle ear constricts, a person can't process language very well. They, they're looking for danger sounds and not information. And that's the way the survival system works in the body. When the adrenaline kicks in. Well, yeah, there's a whole host of things. But yeah, mm-hmm. but that's um, so, so that happens. And, and so think of, the, of whether you're in an, a disagreement with a spouse or a friend or you're you're angry at a child, or you're trying to get the child to hear something. Nobody can hear and process language well when they're in that state. And if the person is angry and trying to have a conversation with somebody, you know, then you hear things like this from parents. Well, I've told them this 50 times and they just don't get it. Well, of course not, because when you're having the conversation, they can't hear you. And, you know, that's not an intentionality. They're not failing to hear you because they are obstinate or stubborn, um, but they are not able to do it by they're logic. Practically, yeah, they're practically in shock. Their body is shut down, you know? Yeah. We also know that people that are raised in kind of chronic toxic stress environments um, as children often manifest the symptoms of ADHD. But the reality is they're not, they don't have ADHD. Their body's in a state of arousal 
and it's doing exactly what the body should be doing. It's not focusing. It doesn't process language very well. It can't learn very well. It can't learn very well because the part of the brain that's being flooded, uh, the chemicals being released, cortisol and adrenaline interfere with sequential memory. So you can't remember very well. You, your, your danger system is saying you need to be checking the environment constantly so you don't pay attention to anything. Your, your attention's all over the place. Um, and uh, if, you're, if you're a person that tries to calm through connecting to people, you're going to overtalk. You're going to talk, and the more stress the teacher or anybody else puts on you, the more you're going to want to talk, which is going to get you in trouble. And so, you know, we know if it's truly an organic issue that it should emerge in any population about 2% of the time. The fact that we have almost 40% of the school-aged children diagnosed as ADHD is, is proof that there are a lot of toxic child-rearing environments out there. 40% of children are diagnosed with ADHD. About that. I did not know that. And really, it can't, it can't be more than 15 to 2%. If, if you understand how genetics and biology work, uh, you know, cancer stays at right about that same, schizophrenia, we've been doing research on schizophrenia for 60 years, and it stays right about one and a half, two percent of a population. But when you have socially driven symptoms that we've labeled like ADHD, um, we have massive numbers, uh, you know, in uh, some of the school systems that I've done some consulting work with, they have 13 to 15% of the kids diagnosed as bipolar. And, you know, but nobody's looking at what's going on in their home. That's staggering, man. It is. It, you figure that the average teenager meets all the criteria for major depression at least once during their adolescence. Because, and it's almost all relational. So we are not a good we are not a good environment for children in the United States. Well, I mean that's that's a segue into some statistics that I want to read off to you because <laughs> again, like I say, the premise of my show is just to raise awareness on 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 these stats, man. I mean it's it's disgusting to me. So as of January 16, 2020, one out of 100 people in the United States are incarcerated. Mm -hmm. Juveniles at 12 years old, 545. At 13 years old, 1,429. At 14, almost 4,000. 15, 7,500. 16, 11,000. 17, 12,000, that was in 2017. It's, it's unremarkable that we had, that's, that's almost, that's almost 50,000 children we have incarcerated in our country. Mm -hmm. Knowing those kind of statistics, what, what effect do you think that's gonna have on our future as a, as a country? Well, I think the incarceration is the frustration of a society in knowing because they're trying to approach the problem from the wrong place. What we're doing is taking the person that is having these behaviors and we're punishing them for having these behaviors. 
In other words, we're actually punishing them because their body is operating the way it is. And we don't like it, so they shouldn't do it. Instead of where we need to be focusing the, the attention is really changing culture. And, you know, what are we doing to build infrastructure so people are employed and can, and can support families and can, you know, what are we doing to help families build, um, you know, cohesiveness and to help parents calm down and help parents be able to be more effective. We're not, we're not investing in that. We are cleaning up the mess afterwards. And, you know, I've worked with juveniles. Delaying the, the, the stimulus past Christmas time definitely ain't helping with the stress of the American people. I could tell you that. No, no. But, but the, you know, you, what you run into is that, uh, and nobody really talks about this statistic, and, and I don't know that anybody really collects it, but um, you probably have a percentage, and I'm going to guess it's probably 5 or 6%, and that's just anecdotal based on my experience. But you have five or six percent of the kids that would rather be in detention than be home because there's more structure and less tension in jail than there is in their household. And that is a horrible situation. And what are we doing to address that? You know, what do we do when family when we know families are having problems? Child protective services come in and they remove the child. And quite often, those children are more traumatized in the system than they were in the home that they were in. And they put all these demands on this very dysregulated parent or parents. And, and then when the parent can't comply, because there's just so much more stress now than there was before, and they weren't managing that well. So when they don't comply, then the governmental bodies say, well, they don't really love their children. Well, that's just BS, is that what are you doing to help the parents be stable? What are you doing to help the parents regulate their own emotions so they have the wherewithal to help these children and to, and to be more effective as parents? Well, going, we back into, going back into what you were discussing earlier, do you think, do you think that's even their, their agenda, though? How, how do we overcome? No. So no. how do we overcome that as, as, as a community? You know, as you and I, as parents and as a community, as Americans, knowing that we're fighting against a, a, a political agenda, how do we overcome that? Most of it is going to require us to just have a whole different mindset on how we see community. Um, you know, what do, you know, many of the people in America don't even know their neighbors. They don't know what don't their know neighbors mine. are experiencing. So how are you ever going to help somebody else stay? Almost everybody, there's, there, there's a, in, the, in the New Yorker magazine, I think it was the second year it was published, it was during an election year, and it shows this two-panel black and white kind of uh, cartoon of a politician. You know how they used to make him look kind of piggish with a big cigar. Yeah. And he's, he's asking his audience, how many think need, there needs to be change? And everybody's hand is up. And in the next panel, it says, who's willing to change? And nobody's hand's going up. Mm. And that's everybody who wants somebody else to do something to make it different. The real truth is that we have to decide to make it different. You know, what are we doing 
And it's, it doesn't take big things. It just takes consistent things. Um, you know, uh, I'll give you a silly example. Being, being in a grocery line, and there's a mother that has three small children, and they're all melting down, and she's trying to get through the line. Um, look at all the look around and see how many people are judging the mother because these children are acting up. Well, the, the children are not regulating. Mom's not going to be able to regulate, and the judgment from other people just makes the dysregulation higher. Uh, and a lot of times, it's just really something simple you can do, like just step forward and say, "Hey." can I help with, can I help with the kids? Can I, you know, is there anything I can do to help you? You know, I understand this is really kind of, they're, they're tired and these are going on. A little bit of compassion applied on a regular basis really helps people calm down. It's, um, I was in a, uh, what state was I in? I don't remember what state I was in, but I went into a, uh, a one of the stores and I, I just picked up something small and the person, you know, held out their money for, held out their hand for the money. And I put the money in their hand and they started to tear up. And I, I said, what's going on? She said, you're the first person that's touched me all day. Most people just throw their money on the counter and you actually have been looking at me and talking to me and you actually touched me. Well, how, much how much is your system so overwhelmed that 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 is a meaningful thing that tells and, you how out of touch we are right and sure. and and this is a lesson that that i had taught you know somebody not too long ago you know i noticed that when i talk to telemarketers or if i call like a customer service agent or something like that you know just by me asking them before I even start into my gripe or my complaint or whatever it is that I'm calling this other human being about just me asking them, you know, how are you doing today? How's your day going? Like it, it, it overwhelms, like you say, it overwhelms this person, you know, because they're not, they're just used to somebody just yelling at them and coming in without even just asking this person, you know, this human being, how their day is going mm -hmm. again. I think that's agenda, you know, and, and now with COVID and then the, with, with, with IT, the way that it is, we're going to be, we're going to be, we're going to be hermits, you know, everybody basically being in their house for a year, you know, social distancing for the past year. It's, it's scary. It really well, is. And that's one of the reasons I think you're seeing a lot of adolescent uh, suicides in the, the numbers are increasing quite a bit. Um, they, they feel isolated and they're not getting the connections that they need and they're not getting them from their friends, which, which is where they've gotten them before. They're definitely not getting them from their parents. If you have dysregulated parents that are all over the place and they're stressed in their life, and then you are locked up with them all day long, yeah, that's uh, that's a recipe for some serious problems. You know, I, I, I recently saw a documentary um, by, a, I think his name was Sir Trevor McDonald. And he went in uh, Indiana State Prison. And he interviewed uh, a gentleman in there. His name was Ronald L. Sanford. 
Ronald Sanford um, committed a double homicide at the age of 13 years old. Mm-hmm. Him and a, him and another guy. Um, the other kid was 15 years old. Their plan was to uh, the, the Indiana State Fair. They wanted to go to the fair, so they were going to mow lawns in order to raise money to go to the fair. The first house they went to was an elderly lady. Uh, they went, knocked on the door. Um, uh, lady, long story short, the lady did not want her lawn cut. So the two boys pushed their way up into the home, stabbed the old lady, uh, waited for her sister to come home, stabbed and killed her, netted $5 out of it. So only one boy ended up going to the fair. And uh, all the all the all the attention got turned on the 13 year old the 15 year old ended up um turning state's evidence right away put all the blame on the 13 year old he didn't do any time the 13 year old got life how do you feel about that i don't think any minor should be getting life in prison um because almost all the time what there is the the basic assumption that we see applied over and over again is that the child had a plan and they did this with intention. And most, even most crime is not done with, with a clear plan. It's mostly opportunistic, you know, kids walking down a sidewalk and they see something in the front seat of a car that they want. They didn't have that plan when they left their house. It's just opportunistic. Um, and so in, for intentionality to occur, you have to be in that part of your brain that's intentional. And that's uh, clearly, the, does he need to be punished for the behavior that they did? Well, yeah, but uh, life imprisonment for for child before they even have a life to really to to really be taken away i mean it's really i i find that prosecuting most adolescents as an adult is a horrific thing but it's not about justice it's about do we get to feel good because we've punished somebody we do not have a recovery or a a uh, reclamation, if you will, uh, attitude towards people that, that get into trouble. Even though we recognize, you know, you look at in a typical jail, you have a good portion are there for drug violations. Um, and almost all of them use whenever they can, because they don't like the state that they're, that they are experiencing when they're not using. Why aren't we addressing the, that state that they're in rather than trying to punish them for their behavior. You, you know, we yell at children for not paying attention, but their arousal system is so high that they can't pay attention. Um, we see people that are dysregulated and engage in opportunistic behavior, and we want to punish them for the behavior with the idea that's really going to help. But what would really help is helping them be able to stay in that part of their conscious brain that would allow them to make decisions. <clears throat> Silly one like this. I had a dad tell me, um, he's talking about his three-year-old, that this three-year-old just does stuff to piss him off. 
And I said, wait a minute, are you telling me that your child gets up in the middle of the night and makes a plan? How can I really torment dad tomorrow? And he goes, well, no, that's stupid. But the way you're talking about it, because you're annoyed, you are saying he's doing that on purpose. That is, it's not his failure to regulate. It's your failure to regulate. You're getting aroused because of what he's doing. So you want to blame him. And that's the society we're in today. We're in a, we're in a society where it's, it's, you know, do as I say, not as I do and blame every, everything society, everything just so that I don't have to look at myself, you know, and, 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 and this is scaring me because I, I see what's going on in Canada. You know, they're actually trying to make it a crime, right. To, to, to call somebody a name to, to, to be offensive, you know, and I just don't like where I see, I see us going. Well, and it's part of it is that, again, it's, it's kind of a global failure to understand what's going on in, in the body of a person. Um, you know, we respond to what's going on in our system. If I have a lot of unmet needs, my body is in survival mode. And so I'm not intentional. I'm not. I'm trying to meet a need and I'll meet it in whatever way I can. And that's, we, we, and when we have kids that are being raised in environments of stress, um, they, they just cannot think clearly. A lot of times when I am talking about this with groups of parents, I will talk about, so the, the genius part of your brain, that's, I call it the Bruce Banner part. Mm -hmm. And you're trying to correct children and you're trying to get the lessons learned when they're in the Hulk mode. Mm -hmm. Or if you like, you know, if you want to think Einstein, Frankenstein, um, they are, when they're in the Hulk, they're not behaving badly. They're behaving organically correctly. They are behaving in biologically correct ways. You shouldn't be punishing people for behaving in biologically correct ways. Essentially, what you're saying is you're a bad person because you're a human being. And that's, that's a horrific message to give people. So, you know, if, and you, it, it doesn't just apply to something simple like that. You have a kid that is, is bent the whole weekend at home um, getting stressed and being maybe ignored or maybe, or, or maybe ridiculed or teased or put down. No physical assaults, no physical abuse, no sexual abuse, but just constantly being irritated. They've been in their Hulk system all weekend and they go to school and Monday morning and they're supposed to sit still, pay attention and do what the teacher says. But their body is still in that arousal state. And one of the reasons that people don't want to look at this stuff, I think often is because the way the body works I can be able to be pretty cognitive in about 20 minutes, 30 minutes after I've had an arousing period, but my body takes upwards of, depending on my history, anywhere from six to 30 hours to metabolize that, those chemicals in the body. And so while I may, may appear like I'm able to talk to you clearly, my body is still churning up with this stuff. And so the next thing that happens can be tiny, but it's just enough to bring me back up 
to full speed again. And so you need time to, to get that body relaxed, or you need to actually do things to help the body relax. So when we go in and work with schools, we talk about, look, you, if that kid comes into your room and he's in, he is in a state of arousal, you need to do several things. One, you need to recognize it. Two, you need to keep you calm in the face of that arousal. Because if you move into a power struggle with somebody or you, if you're trying to correct them when they're in Hulk mode, how well is that going to work? I mean, you know, I don't know if you're a Marvel comic fan, but telling Hulk that he should calm down isn't going to work. Telling Hulk that he should uh, not do something, the Hulk is, an, is a creature of instinct and survival. <clears throat> and that's what you're dealing with. So why we don't teach that to teachers. We teach them to punish. And all they're really interested in is compliance and, and acquiescence. And when they can't get that, then they get mad at the kids. Well, if you've got a kid that's already aroused and they're sitting there and they're doing their best, but their body is just blowing them up, a teacher sounds, can either blow it, it up more or help. It sounds like a big hamster wheel to me, you know, and it, and it all revolves all back to, to just governmental pressures, you know, that, that we have on us, you know, just... And, and it's like how you said earlier, you know, when I said that, that we don't have time as parents because, you know, we're working and, and you said it so well that we do have time. We're just choosing to spend our time in other ways than, than what the priority should be, which is our children. You know, at the end of the day, if, if, if as you say, you know, me and the wife, we spent all weekend, you know, arguing over bills or whatever. It may be minute to her and I, but it's traumatic to our child. And we have to yeah. recognize that. We have to recognize, even though that we know that her and I was just frustrated and we were just raising our voices, the child does not know that. And the right. child is sitting up in the room like, I've never heard mommy and daddy talk to each other like this. The child does not understand bills. So how, how, how do we as parents recognize traumatic events that are happening to our children that we just write off as everyday life? Well, part of this is, and I don't think governments can do anything to change this, to be honest with you. Well, it all boils down to self. It, it really requires maturity on the part, on the part of adults. Mm -hmm. um, are you familiar with the ACE studies? No. The Adversity of Childhood Experience Studies. Mm -mm. So in the mid-90s, we discovered through a massive piece of research that there are common factors that create um, trauma. And, you know, certainly child sexual abuse, physical abuse and neglect, emotional and physical neglect, um, witnessing domestic violence are, are some of those but the rest were all family dysfunction. And if you had three or four of these, you were at risk of having a 20 year less lifespan because your body builds those patterns early in life. And, and uh, Vince Valetti, who's the primary investigator of that, and I were speaking at a conference a couple of years ago and somebody in the audience said, well, you know, if you had to, if you had to, 
um, summarize the A study in one study in one statement, what would it be? And he and Vince said, without even dropping a, a beat, the A study is massive evidence of the failure of parenting because you have parents that are not regulating themselves because we, we want to talk in terms of choice. So the parents choosing not to do something. No, only, you only have choice when you're in Bruce, Bruce Banner mode. Mm -hmm. When you're in hope mode, you're in reaction mode. And what How we do you have know when it, you're in, in either one. Well, First of all, you have to get that system calmed down well enough to recognize when your body's shifting. You recognize when your body is shifting. I mean, you know, how many times have you noticed your breath is changing, your breath volume is changing, your heartbeat is changing, your muscle tension is changing? It's, but we aren't aware of that. We're like... But, but Dr. Bob, what about the person that's in a, like, as we said earlier, a perpetual state of... of of just excitement and trauma all day from the moment they wake yep. up to the moment they go to sleep is anger and, 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 and aggravation and argument all day. So, so the question so, is who's in charge of that environment? Well, it's not the person. That's right. The people that have to make the initial changes are the people in charge of the environment. Which is yourself. And that's why I say it all comes down to self. Yeah. And well, it is, it is the self except biologically, I mean, I mean, I don't care what human development book you look at, children are not designed to be self-regulating. No. They are designed to be regulated in response to a connected relationship. In order to have good connected relationships, the adult must be able to stay in Bruce Banner mode. If the adult cannot do that, they cannot help the child. When that's 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 a great point because me my my wife and I we had a discussion the other day about about that about whether children have personalities or whether they're just mimicking their environment, you know. For me, they, I say that for me, I just say that that children mimic what their environment is, you know, into a, a certain degree to a certain point to where they start to form their own personality, fourteen, fifteen, you know, young adolescents. Um, when they go into that switch, but she claims that she had a personality of her own at five years old. So, well, I'm going to probably take a different tack with you. Each body has its own sensitivity. So, um, where I have, you know, where, where somebody can be born in the same family and this person is more reactive to cortisol than their brother or sister is and this one's more reactive to ketchacolamine or and so when the same event is happening it is interpreted biochemically differently for each person and so the patterns that are built that we tend to think of as being you know a lot of a lot of personality are being built by those those unique sensitivities and so all, all of us come with a design, if you will, that is either going to be um, uncovered and built or it's going to be overran by what we're experiencing. But your parents are, you know, that's that caregiving environment, whatever it is, is the part that brings out 
should bring out the attributes of this personality. The reality is that a lot of what's happening is that children are having to, to smother those natural parts of themselves because of the environment that they're in. You know, the, the child that would normally love to engage in, in, with adults and want to be connected and want to talk and be, be around them. Um, but because of the dysregulation of the parent, for example, um, they've learned to associate a certain car door slam with a drunk parent. And so they, they would like to be able to meet that parent and have a good time and connect with them when they come home. But that car door means it's unsafe. And so now they run, to the, they hear that, that door sound, Crazy. their body shifts chemistry, and they run to their room and hide. Or they gear up for a fight to get that engagement that they need. But they are not responding through a rational decision making. It is a reactive process They've moved out of any kind of executive functioning. And children are not designed to be able to regulate themselves. You know, I have a lot of folks that will say, well, when should a child be able to regulate themselves? And I say, well, when do you think? And they say, well, around three or four. I said, no, a child shouldn't be able to recognize, to really regulate themselves consistently um, until somewhere between 11 and 13. And that is if they have lived in and been raised in an environment that has been pretty well regulated. If the environment hasn't been well regulated, we're gonna push that time frame back, maybe even a decade. And- What about like, a tumultuous one? Well, yeah, it, it, you, you can't expect a child to be well regulated when, when, they are, uh, when they're living in that environment. Funny, funny, I had a couple of teachers say, well, look, this kid has been raised in this environment and they are, they are good students and they're very, you know, they're very meticulous and they're very perfectionistic in what they do. And I, yeah, that's right. Because that's how they've adapted is there's such chaos around them. The only way they can feel safe is to put order to everything. And that may work really well academically and it may work really well career wise, but it's, it's going to play hell with their relationships. So, so as a as an adult parent, say a single mother or you know a single father or, or however, how do you spot or recognize if a child is displaying some sort of trauma? Well, you'll see all of those. You'll see all their reactions of arousal. Um, the first place isn't to notice it in a child. The first place is to notice it in the adult. When do I? Am I shifting into an aroused state? Is my body reacting to tension and stress? If I can't relax it, I can't help a child relax. And so um, we always want the kid to be able to do stuff, but the kid, again, they're not wired to be able to do this. They're only wired to do it in response to a, a regulated adult. And, and until they have lots of experiences of co-regulating with that adult, they can't do that for themselves. You know, it, when they get to be in their mid-20s, they can. But it really requires a lot of work. So I guess what, about what age would you say that the, the child starts forming their own personality? 
you know, they're making their own decisions and, and as a parent. Let's speak. Personality has nothing to do with our decision making. Mm. How personality, personality is really the our manifest of our of our process of how we are digesting experience. Well, true. That's the expression of what our experiences through life has been. Mm-hmm. But how does that not factor into our decisions? Well, because decision making is the way we talk about decision-making in our, in our society assumes that people have thought things through and they're making an active choice. Most of the time for children, they are not making an active choice. They're making a reactive choice because the system that they're in isn't, isn't that logic system. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm, I'm not to be difficult, but I'm trying to be really careful about the decision-making piece because so many people say, well, they decided to do that. Well, they only decided if they are in their Hulk, if they're in Bruce Banner mode. If ah, they're in okay. Hulk mode, they're so, reactive. So, so a conscious person is is okay is right living through through decisions, but but a reactive emotional person isn't, which is most of uh, our, our people today. You know, and, that, and again, right. this is this is what I bring out in a lot of my shows, and and this is I've led a life of emotional decisions. I know the outcome of what making emotional decisions are. And what that is, is a lot of, I wish I would have thought that through more clearly, you know, and it's a lot of chaos. It's it, man, let me tell you who you telling a lot of chaos, you know, and I'm tired. And this is the thing. This is what I'm trying to teach my daughter now. Like put all the hard work in now because your body structure is designed for this hard work now. Mm-hmm. Because at 45, it's not, you know, <laughs> I played, I played when I should have been working, you know, working hard. And now I have to work hard when I should be playing, you know. That's the nature of our learning cycle, apparently. That's, you know, most of us, um, you know, if you grew up with any kind of with stress or trauma, you're just looking to you're just looking for things to kind of fill up that the the holes in your soul. Well, as you were saying earlier, you know, for me, coming home from school, my first temperature check was if the house was silent and nobody was talking, I knew that my father was in a rage and for me just to go to my room and not make no noise, no distractions. That was as soon as I opened the door, I did a temperature check of the house. If people were moving around, I knew that my father was calm. Everything was okay, you know, and, and, and I learned at a very, very young age, how to read bodies, how to read people's expressions, their, their bodies and engage. It was a survival strategy for you. It it was. And it, it, I mean, it grew into something, you know, useful today you know, but, but it was, it was very traumatic, you know, it was a very, very traumatic time all the way through. So, sure. you know, to sum this up, go ahead. So it's the environment begins to change the neurochemistry and the, uh, and the neurochemicals and hormones in the body as early as the second trimester. 
Well, let me ask you this, coming from somebody whose mother was eight months jumping off a you know, the, the chair trying to, to, to induce labor because she was just tired of being pregnant. <laughs> you know, how does that affect a child in the womb, you know? Well, remember, any of the chemistry that's going on in your, your parent is coming into you as well. So if there's a lot of stress hormones, um, you're the lucky recipient of that. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, you know, which will affect how you view the world. Um, there was a really interesting study that was done in the early 90s by a guy named Martin Teacher teacher out of uh, Boston's uh, McLean Hospital. It was in the early days of, of brain imaging research. And they, they uh, proposed that if you, if you exposed a pregnant primate to daily levels of moderate stress, and they define it pretty well, um, that the offspring would be born with more mass and volume in the part of the brain that is that Hulk part, the, the paralimbic, the, the reactive survival system. And so they did this study and what they found was that those offspring that were born from the, the stressed parent had more mass and volume, sometimes as much as two deviations higher than the control group. And that's, that was amazing. And everybody's like, well, that's what we expected. But there, there's a message there. And there's actually two messages. Let me make this one. That what the fetus was experienced because of stress in the mother was changing the way their brain worked, was changing their sensitivity to certain um, hormonal and biochemical changes in their own body. So is this how you, you, you know, quote unquote, are born evil? Well, I don't believe in being born evil. I think that's just... I don't either, personally, but... But the other piece of that is, is that as they continued to, to study those offspring, when those offspring reproduced in non-stressful environments, that was handed down to their offspring. And it took several generations of, of, those, of offspring to, to remediate the original change. Several generations. Several. So we don't, we don't like thinking about that because you know, that's way forward focused in our society. But you know, what kids are experiencing even prenatally can show up not only in their own life, but it can show up in the lives of their grandchildren. And that is a really unfortunate legacy that we have that we're passing down. Now, would addiction result in the same fashion? I mean, is that the same? Would it would it create the same trauma in that unborn child? It, it can because it's changing the chemistry of the body. You know, so if you have a parent that's on, you know, let's say uh, amphetamines of some kind, well, the body's going to develop a sensitivity to that prenatally that is going to make it more likely for them to need some kind of stimulation. Um, you're going to find a lot of kids whose parents have been heavy marijuana users have the, have the symptoms of ADHD because they are, they, 
need constant stimulus in order to be able to function. <clears throat> so, you know, we, we have so much, so much of what we do in, as parents in our society is not done with any kind of intentionality. It's not done with any clarity of thinking. It's not done with clear decision-making. It is, we have a whole bunch of really reactive parents and I'm not judging them. I'm just saying biologically they are in that state and they are incapable until they can regulate themselves of really doing a good job of parenting. And the, the real scary part of this is, is we, we're already seeing the impact of it. Um, you know, you go back when I was a kid, there weren't any child protective services. If your parent was treating you badly, they were prosecuted under animal protection laws. We had, we had animal protection laws a good 70 years before we had a human protection law. Protecting our children. Protecting our children. And, you know, we, when you have a whole society that everything is designed... You know, you know what's crazy? I, not, not to cut you off, Dr. Bob, but you know what's crazy? Is communist Russia understood that the children was the, the essential need. Like, all the education goes into the children. How do we not, I, I don't get, that blows my mind. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but that, that blows my mind. We don't want to hear it. That's crazy. You know, when, when, we, when I have had conversations with groups that I'm presenting to, I get a lot of feedback from the group saying, well, you're just blaming parents. And I'm not blaming anybody. I'm explaining what's going on biologically. Right. In, in order to change right. it. Right, it's science. You can't argue with science. This is science. No. <laughs> this, is, this is, you know, you increase uh, neuroadrenaline, neuroadrenaline, you know, a little bit, and people are going to become more assertive or aggressive or hostile. I mean, that's, that's the correct response if you change that. And so, you know, we get, because we don't like the responses, we tend to blame them and shame people and want to point our finger at them and say they're bad or they're evil or they're sinful. I don't have any value in that. Um, is there genuine evil out there? I believe there is, but I, th I think no one's genuinely evil unless they are able to, unless they are in their executive functioning system and making these choices, you know, and those are usually what you would consider high functioning sociopaths. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, and we still have that many of those folks. What we're, what we're usually blaming people for is the, the reactive things that they do um, to try to meet a need. And this is, underpins most addiction. Come, most addiction and compulsive behavior comes because you don't want to experience something. And I would rather use this drug than feel like I do when I don't use it. Right. And so, or put in the work to correct the behavior because taking a pill is much easier. Sure. You sure. know? Yeah, I'm blown away by that generational thing that you said, because it, it takes several generations to get back to the point of, of no error. And that's without one of those generations experiencing the same stress that, that created the error in the first place. And how often is that going to happen? Yeah. So to me, that, that sounds like we're just building a, a pyramid of, of mental instability in our, in our nation. Well, I think we're going to see more, more evidence of dysregulation in the next decade than we've seen in the last three or four. 
um, because we're, we're seeing it kind of just becoming a stronger, more, more large component of our society. But, but the reality is it, it, governments really can't regulate this. It requires people to choose right. to be. At the end of the day, I mean, like, like, I, like I tell people, we could sit around and we can blame the prosecutors, we can blame the judges, we can blame the people that tell on us, we can blame whoever we want to blame. But at the end of the day, I made the decisions that I made because of either lack of education, laziness, whatever, but it, it, I'm the blame. At the end of the day, I'm the blame. And I have to change that, you know? Dr. Bob, I want you to, um, before, we, before we get off, I know you guys have an online course. And, and um, I, don't, I, I spoke to Ms. Lucy, and, and Ms. Lucy uh, suggested that I can give my listeners 10% off for your online course okay. if, they, if they join in and, uh, and mention, you know, that, that they watch the, the Free Me podcast. So can you explain a little bit about this course and what it is? Well, I'm not sure which course she suggested to you, but... Is there um, multiple courses? I guess it's a 10-hour course. Okay, we have about, we have about 30 courses online. It's ah. probably the um, trauma support specialist, which is what we do a lot for parents and that. Okay. And, and, uh, she um, gave it to me in the email. I'll put it in the link in description and all that for the, for the appropriate, but... Well, I'm also going to give you um, two 90-minute things. I'm going to put them in the chat right now. Okay, um, perfect. One is on looking at motivation. If you're going to work with people that are traumatized, you have to approach motivating them differently. Mm -hmm. And then I also have in there the difference between um, um, traditional therapy and trauma therapy. It's a huge difference. So... Uh, and then the uh, on our on our YouTube page, which really might be the a better fit for your listeners, we actually have an entire four and a half hour training called "Loving Them Isn't Enough." I saw that. I got that in my watch list. I'm gonna watch it. And it's a uh, um, Crystal worked from. Well, she she's a great therapist. She was also my one of my grad students. So. Mm -hmm she is kind of grown up with the way we do things. And, uh, but you know, it's very, very, uh, it's very succinct. It's easy to understand and it's really designed for parents. Um, so that, and that wouldn't cost them anything. They could just watch that for free. And, and, uh, you know, if we, if we can get the message out and just have people be aware enough to start looking at how do, how can I change? Because, the, the natural tendency is anytime we're aroused, we want other people to change. You know, the car, you're driving on the freeway. We've all cut people off unintentionally. We've all done it more than once. Um, but if somebody cuts you off in traffic, you know, we get mad about it. We get afraid. We get mad. And they're the asshole. And the reality is that that's just our failure to manage us. They're the asshole, even though I'm doing 60 and a 45. You know? well, yeah, of course, because they, they made me afraid and, and that, that they're, that's bad. Um, you know, it's, uh, you, you see it in all sorts of things. Uh, the kid that uh, is kept after school and miss, so he doesn't have a bus home and has to walk home and he gets home late and the parents are 
frantic about what happened to the kid and they scream and yell at the kid for being late because they're afraid. Right. Uh, you know, th that's one of the challenges we face is how do we keep ourselves in the place of intentionality? Because most, most adults are not living intentional lives. Most adults are living reactionary lives. Mm. And that's, yeah, well, that's true. And it's hard to teach a child to be um, intentional if the adult isn't intentional. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Let me circle back around because I, I feel that's very important, especially for young parents. So in that moment when the parent knows that they're emotional and they're, you know, Johnny, what did I tell you about, you know, whatever this and that, you know, when, when is it a good time to circle back and really explain to that child so he will understand and he will remember? Well, when, the, when both parties are calm. When both parties, the next night or, or however, a couple be. hours later. And it could be too, you know, a lot of times parents want to know, why did you do that? And they don't have an answer for that. Um, and, and what, if you're regulating, well, you can direct them in the direction you want them to go. And, and that's going to be more powerful in creating change than trying well, to create behavior. That's how I learned how to lie at a very young age was exactly what you said, because uh, I was expected to give an answer. I didn't know how to give. And I, yeah. and I knew as long as I gave an answer, they would just go away, you know? And Yeah. So you, the, the, you know, if you want, the, the truth is, and, and again, um, we have a lot of examples of how people can regulate themselves. Uh, Dr. Kamiya Pika, who's one of our senior staff, has done quite a few, like 20 or so brief little exercises that are available on our YouTube page. Again, no cost to your consumer, to, no cost to anybody that wants to look at them. If they if they want to start learning some skills to how to keep themselves calm, and uh, but the reality is no child is going to outregulate their parent or their caregiver, and so that always makes people uncomfortable when we start saying because they want to say well this kid's doing this and this kid's doing this and they're they're doing these kinds of things and our our quite our initial answer is what's going on in their environment. What are you doing to creating a peaceful, settled environment so that there's right. no stress? And yeah. then they kind of look at you like, well, wait a minute. That's not, this isn't my problem. They're doing the behavior. Right. Well, no. What do you, you mean they? You're talking about an eight-year-old child. I mean, come on, you know. Yeah. I know, you know, and I, and I get it with, with, you know, some of the listeners that I have when I speak to them or whatnot that says, I can't control my child. Okay, well, maybe you can't control your child because you can't control yourself. You know, you are the example for that child, you know, so ask yourself, why is this child out of control? You know? Yep. It's really funny. I had uh, some parents that were like, they were raising twin, and at the time they were nine years old, twin nine-year-olds. And they would say things to the kids and then be yelling at the kids because the kids didn't do it the way that they thought. And and so the, these kids were in constant constant tension and there was just a really funny moment and this is from a therapist's point of view it was a funny moment so they told the kids to clean up their room i don't want we come back for, we're going to go shopping we come back we want your room clean and we don't want to see anything on the floor 
So I've heard that a million times. <laughs> they left for two and a half hours. In that two and a half hours, everything made it out of that bedroom into the front yard, including the carpet and padding. Oh my goodness. I call that malicious obedience. <laughs> but they did exactly as they were told. Well, and of course, the parents blew up. Yeah. Because, but that's, they were, they were they, being, yeah, because the kids were being smart asses, right? That's what, that's, but because, but, and I said, well, where have they ever been? How, how did you teach them to clean up their room? Did you go through and practice? This goes here, this, and I don't have time to do that. Right. You basically just wanted them to go do what you wanted them to do without any kind of instruction. Well, they are nine years old. They should. So again, you never went through any process of training them. You just expected them and you've always been expecting them to do the things that you want them to do. That doesn't work. With no understanding. Yep. They're just supposed to magically appear in their, in their thoughts and their minds of, of how to get everything off the floor. <laughs> That's right. So this is, and this, it's a silly example, but the reality is that they created the situation. Right. And of course, they don't want to accept the responsibility for that because that makes them feel bad, uh, you know, but it, it, the reality is the adult must be a, a intentionally living human being in order to, to influence kids for the best. How much time each day is important for, for a, a parental and a child to, to spend together? It's going to flex based on the child. Some children are going to need more. Some children are going to need less. But I would... How do you know? Well, you, you, you kind of have to sense what's going on with, with that relationship. The thing is that most, most in our society, most kids are not getting the attention that they need from an adult. Um, what do parents do? You know, you go back. <clears throat> instead of doing things with the kid... They want the kid to go do something else while they do what they need to do. Right. They don't fix meals that way. You know, I mean, it's everything. They, they really, it's kind of like most parents would be better off having a pet than, because they don't really want a child. They want something to play with them when they want it to play with. They don't want it to make a mess. They don't want it to be too much trouble. Um, they are not really interested in raising another human being. That's absolutely correct. Or they don't know the responsibility behind it and they just want to have a child because they're lonely and they want to have, just like you said, you're better off going and just getting a pet for real because you're bringing, you're bringing a child into this life that is just going to create chaos, mm -hmm. you know, for both the parent and the child. So, and, and, and a whole lot of other people behind that <laughs> taxpayers, systems, all of that, you know, it's, it's, and that's why I say, you know, when we have, going back to the stat, you say 4% of children today is coming up with ADHD in schools. Nearly 40%. Near, 40. Oh, I thought you said four, nearly 40%. 40. And then, so if you take, if you take the stat out of, of one out of every hundred is incarcerated so the just just we know that there is a single family home or some sort of chaotic environment just in that stat alone 
and we know that the average home has two children in it, I mean, that's a, that's a large portion of your 40% right there. Well, if you, and again, you might want to read the original ACE study. You can find it on this Center for yeah. Disease Control's uh, website. But essentially what they say is 67% of children are being raised in toxic environments. 67%. And what, and that was from the nineties, you said? Yep. I guarantee it's probably went up. Oh yeah. I don't have any doubt that it is, but. Where do you um, think it's at? 82, 85? I think it's probably, they did a repeat of it in 2010 and it was a, only a couple of points higher. But when you're talking about that massive a number, you know, you're talking a two thirds of your population. That's pretty horrific. At a, at a rate like that, where would we be in 20 years? Again, this stuff is being transmitted intergenerationally. So I'm not, in 20 years, I'm not so worried. In 50 years, I've got some serious worry. 50 years. Mm -hmm. Well, Dr. Bob, I, I, I greatly appreciate this conversation, man. I, I've been waiting so long for this here. You know, <laughs> well, I thank have. you. It's been a it's been a great conversation. I love I love the fact that you love the children and, and you created what you've created for the love of children. You know, um, I'm doing what I can over here, just trying to raise awareness with, you know, parents that are yes, they have somebody that's incarcerated or they've been incarcerated themselves, their you know addiction things of that nature. You know, yeah. um, the belly of the beast is what I like to call it. You Keep know, at it. We need people doing that. That's where I'm at. And, and, and I, that's where I relate, you know, so um, I love all people. I love all humans. I don't discriminate. I don't judge. Everybody needs help. I understand through my own mental trauma, you know, and, and, and instability that if I'm this, if I'm this messed up, there's probably a whole lot of people that's just as messed up as I am, you know? So. Yeah, I think that's, the the humanity of it is that this is affecting everybody yeah even if it's not within the walls of your own home as your children are interacting with these other children it they're going soon. they're going to get glimpses of this and then as they move into adulthood um who are they going to have relationships with and right. that's this is this is something we really need to be working hard at and again i don't think it's a it's not something a government can regulate it is really the awareness and the benefits of that awareness really need to be spread far and wide and we need to be actively doing things to lift people right are you spending enough time with your children are you making sure that they're heard and understood you know are you explaining you know events that are going on in your house that you may just write off as as frivolous, but, you know, are you checking with your child to see if they were offended by this in any kind of way, you know? Yeah. And are, are you modeling your own self-regulation and talking about the benefits right. of it to the child? Yeah. The so. biggest, that, that was a big thing for me was, was constantly that, that, um, do as I say, not as I do attitude that was constantly around me, which, 
which made me rebellious. Sure. You no. Know? So, Dr. Bob, again, you take care of yourself, stay safe. You know, how's the COVID out there right now? Uh, about the same as everybody else. Everybody's, you know, trying to stay in and stop spreading it around, but <laughs> we just can't do it. <laughs> we well, just can't do it, man. Free me podcast.